Our scripture reading today is Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 24. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. You can follow along in your own Bibles or on the screen to your left. Again, that's Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 24. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, Keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. So that you also may know how I am and what I am doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are, and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers, and love with faith, from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ, with love incorruptible. This is the word of the Lord. When someone says spiritual warfare, what, what pictures come to your mind? Think on that for a second. Spiritual warfare. What, what pictures come to mind? What actions, if any, what actions come to your mind when you think about spiritual warfare? Uh, depending on your church background, probably some different pictures over here and over here and throughout come to our minds, perhaps some different actions that come to mind. C.S. Lewis, in his preface to the book Screwtape Letters, says it well, I think. He says, quote, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves, that is the devils, are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight, end quote. I think that's about right. In my experience, we tend to fall over into one of two camps, right? So that on the one side, we see a demon under every rock, right? You get a flat tire, it's the demons popping my tires, the dog starts barking in an inappropriate time in your show or a ball game you're watching, and it's the demons stirring them up. They don't want you to have the R&R that you need and deserve. Typically in this camp, there is a system 
for casting out such demons. It's usually pretty forceful. I understand that yelling helps, and it tends to be formulaic. And so with, with force, you say something along the lines of, in the name of Jesus, I bind you up and I cast you out. Right? So that's sort of one side. On the other side, many within the church, and I would say probably many of us who come up in a Reformed tradition, fall to the other side. And that is, while we may tip our hat to the reality of demons, I mean, we take the Bible seriously, they're in the Bible, so we acknowledge them, but for all intents and purposes, we act as though they don't really exist. I mean, after all, we live in a fallen world, and we and all of our fellow human beings have a sin nature, and the sin nature can basically explain away all of the evil there is in our own lives and in the world around us. And so we don't really think about demons. I think, biblically speaking, reality is probably somewhere in the middle there. Satan is almost certainly not popping your tires for one thing, because he's not omnipresent like God. And none of us are important enough that Satan himself is actually putting his attention specifically on you. And what's more, his emissaries, the demons, who are going after the church, probably don't give a rip about your tires. And if your tires flatten your light to the piano recital, they probably don't care. If anything, they might be protecting your tires so that we can keep our focus on anything other than Christ and the church. See, Satan and his minions' hatred is aimed first and foremost at God. He hates Jesus for who he is and what he's accomplished. If we think about a text like Revelation 12 through 13, he's fuming mad and he has decided to make war on the church until Jesus comes again and once and for all casts him into the lake of fire. Until then, Satan and his emissaries will go after the church. In so doing, they'll go after church leaders, trying to get them to fall. Because if they fall, many people can get hurt. So please pray for your elders. They'll go after the teaching within the church. Little by little, bit by bit, with the hope of getting the church off the rails theologically, or at least sidetracked on some secondary or tertiary issue. They'll put pressures on the church from the outside world. See Revelation 13. They will go after people in the church, trying to get you sideways with others in here, right? To cause disunity, so as to wreak havoc in the church, so as to knock the church off of her mission, in fact, all of what Paul's been teaching us to believe in chapters 1 through 3, Satan and his minions want us to reject. And all he's been teaching us about how to live in chapters 4 through 6, he wants us to soften little by little, more and more, so that how we live doesn't really matter because God's a God of love. And thus we come to Paul's final exhortation here in Ephesians. And here Paul says, at the end of the day, when all is said and done, stay strong. Stay strong in the Lord. Stand firm. Look at the text that was just read for us. I want to begin by rereading verse 10. Ephesians 6, starting with verse 10. 
Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Paul begins with the word finally. He's, he's wrapping up. In Ephesians 1 through 3, you remember he told us all about our stunning and amazing calling to which we've been called as Christians. He told us things like we were chosen by God from before the foundation of the world. That's amazing. It's glorious. He told us things like we were predestined to adoption as sons and that as sons we have a glorious inheritance waiting on us. Well, what's more, he told us that we were sealed by the Holy Spirit so that we will in fact make it to that inheritance, that we will persevere to the end. He told us that we who were dead spiritually, dead, have been made alive in Christ. He told us that we were enslaved. Think about this. We were in slavery. This is totally connected with where we're going today. We were enslaved to the world, the devil, and our own flesh, that unholy trinity. But by the grace of God, we've been set free by Jesus. He told us how we've been saved by grace through faith. And by the way, that language of saved in the Bible is always salvation from judgment. We've been saved by Christ from the wrath of God we deserve. And let me just pause. You might be here this morning and you don't yet know Jesus. And this is important. All of us, every single one of us in this room, Every single human being are born with a sin nature and we rebel against God. We have all committed high treason against the high king and thus we deserve his judgment. We deserve his wrath, but God is gracious and merciful. In so doing, we just sang about the incarnation. God sent his son. He dispatched his son on the world's greatest rescue mission. And Jesus came and lived the life that none of us could live, and he went to the cross and bore the punishment we deserve to bear. And friend, if you will look to Jesus and believe in him today, you can be saved. You can be right with God. You can have new relationship with God that starts now and goes for all eternity. In fact, looking back at Ephesians 1 through 3, Paul told us, you'll remember, that for those who do come to faith, we are new creations in Christ, created in Christ for good works. And thus you get into chapters four through six, right? Where he turns the corner and goes from sort of the theology of how it all happens to the expectation of these new creations. What are the good works? And, and there he says that we are to walk, we're to live in a manner worthy of our calling. Part of that is to work hard to maintain the unity we've been brought into. That's a huge part of spiritual warfare right there. And it was right at the top of chapter 4, right when he turned the corner. Therefore, in light of all of that, work hard to maintain unity. He said we were to stop thinking and living like unbelievers. Remember, we've been rescued out of our slavery to the world, the devil, and the flesh. So he says stop thinking like that. Stop living like that. In fact, we are to walk in love with a like kind of love that Jesus has shown for his church. We're now freed up to love each other, to lay down our lives for one another, to help each other. We're to walk as children of light, not stumbling around in the darkness. We're, We're to watch carefully how we walk, how we live. Not as the fool, but as those who are wise. In fact, we are to be filled with the Spirit 
Remember, the Spirit fills us kind of like wind in a sail, so it leads us along. And when, when the Spirit, when He's leading us, there's expected results like singing, thanksgiving, relationships in our home, husbands and wives, children and parents, slaves and masters. And it's, and it's, and it's all-encompassing. And us here... Paul, at the end of all of that, says, finally, he's pulling all that together, finally, in in, in all of this, stay strong, remain strong, don't move on from that, stand right there. The verb, be strong, is a present imperative in the original, so not only is it a command, But it is a command with ongoing implications. That's why you can say, be strong or keep on being strong. Remain strong. And notice where our strength comes from. Paul says, church, be strong, remain strong in the Lord. Stay strong by living in the strength of His might. And this is important for us to be clear on sort of right at the top of our thinking about spiritual warfare, because quite frankly, I think this is often taught with, how shall I say, a a bit of male macho bravado. Come on, men, let's go out and kick some spiritual butt and take names. We're we're dudes, we're we're made for this. We got broad shoulders and hairy chests. We're, We're up to the task. But when we really understand the text... The the macho bravado doesn't fit. If anything, the picture painted here would be more along the lines of a a little kid who's got the biggest, strongest, most awesome big brother you could ever have, and to be sure, he's going to be on the side of a lot of winning so long as he stays really close to his big brother. And like all analogies, that one would break down if you push it too far. But the point is... We are called to be strong, and the only way we're going to be strong is if we stay close to Jesus. Paul here paints a picture of a battle to show us both how and the seriousness of that which he's calling us. He says, be strong in the Lord. Again, the picture for being strong in the Lord is this this regular dawning of this armor that God has provided for us. And we're going to get into some of the specifics about the armor in a bit. But here, I want to point out two things that are vitally important for our understanding here. First, and this is important, we, we Western Christians tend to individualize everything. And we certainly individualize this passage. We sort of look at it as uh, me, Jesus, my Bible, and my armor, and we're going to go out and kick some tail. But, but this passage is corporate. It's communal. We're we're, we're Texans. We actually have a second plural, right? Most of the rest of the country doesn't get a second plural. They say you guys or something like that, but we got a good one. We say y'all. And and, and I point that out because it doesn't come out in the English translations, but this whole passage is using a y'all, right? Greek's an inflected language. These are all second plurals. Every single one of the commands, y'all, be strong. Y'all, put on the armor. Y'all, together, Stand firm in the battle. This is important because we're in this battle together. And it's just like a team of Navy SEALs are sent out on a mission together as a, as a team. We're putting this armor on together. We're, we're in this battle as a church. If you're out there fighting alone, you're in trouble. 
You need a team. You, you need a local church. Might I suggest coming to our membership class next week? And if you don't join here and get totally involved, go somewhere where you can be all in because you really need to live out the, the y'all. Second, I want you to see something about this armor right here at the top. And that is, I want you to see that the armor is very, 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 very basic. We often over-spiritualize the armor of God. We talk about it with such high and lofty ideas that when we're all done, we still have no idea what we're talking about or how to use it. But, but when you remove the picture, the, the delivery system for the teaching, we see that we're talking about basic Christian realities like truth, righteousness, peace that comes from the gospel, faith, salvation, and the word of God. All things that have been at our disposal from the moment of our conversion. So this isn't something that's high and lofty, pie in the sky, Superman stuff for super Christians. This is basic Christian realities available to every single Christian. That said, these things do have to be employed. We do have to put them on every day. You know, commentators love to point out that this is analogous to Paul saying... You've put on the new man. You are a new creation in Christ. So put off the old man and put on the new, right? Put on what you already are. Every one of these realities have been ours since the day we came to know Jesus. But we have to employ them. We have to put them on every day. We have to use them because, because we have a very dangerous supernatural enemy. Look back at the text, verses 11 through 13. It says, put on the whole armor of God, that purpose statement, you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, y'all, take up the whole armor of God, that y'all may be able to withstand in the evil day, having done all to stand firm. Church, don't miss that Paul is wanting us to see that the stakes are high here. Okay? We have a formidable foe. He briefly changes the picture from warfare to wrestling as if to show that we're in close hand-to-hand combat. But it's not what some might think. For that wrestling, the battle we're in, he says, is not against flesh and blood. Our, our ultimate wrestling, our ultimate striving is not against people. Though, to be sure, at times it really feels like it. But inspired by the Spirit, Paul's wanting us to see it's deeper than that. Listen, if you are at odds with a family member or a brother or sister in Christ, Paul's wanting you to know there's more to it. If you are comfortable with that, you're comfortable with being at odds with them, you're feeling justified in your anger or, say, bitterness, Paul wants you to see that you shouldn't be because that means you're getting smoked right now in the ultimate battle. 
mean, if the demons can get us sideways with each other, they're walking around like slapping high fives with everyone. Because while they might not have ultimate victory, they've just won that battle. See, church, Paul's wanting us to see there's a battle behind the battle. And the battle behind the battle is the one that should be at the forefront of our minds. See, I don't want to stay mad at someone because I know that's one of the schemes of the devil. And if I'm mad at someone, his emissaries can set up a stronghold there. Remember chapter 4. And here Paul wants us to see that the devil is well-organized and working against us in the realm of the supernatural. Let me look back at the text. you got your, your rulers and authorities. That's the two most common words Paul uses throughout his writings on, on, on demonic forces, okay? So, rulers and authorities, but here he adds cosmic powers and, and spiritual forces. And while some have tried to take these and, and create sort of a demonic org chart, so you got, you know, this guy's the boss and this guy's like the lieutenant and all that, I don't think that's the point. I just don't think he's being that specific here. But what I do think it shows, and I do think this is the point, is that our enemy is well-structured and highly organized. Remember, Satan's not like God, okay? He's not omnipresent. That's only God. Satan can't be here and there and all these places at, at one time. But he is the leader of a supernatural, well-structured, very organized supernatural force whose aim is to make war on Christ and his church. And thus Paul once again says, therefore, y'all, y'all take up the whole armor of God for the very purpose that y'all might be able to stand firm. And don't miss that he says, take up the whole armor of God. Some translations say the complete armor of God, as the picture here is a fully equipped soldier. We are lacking nothing we need for this battle. We have every single thing we need. The issue is we don't always make use of it. And so now we can start to dig into some of the specifics. What is this armor? Look back at the text. Read verses 14 through 17. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace, in all circumstances take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit which is the word of God. As we consider this armor, we need to recognize that you've got both the imagery and the reality, okay? The imagery is here to highlight the importance of each reality that's been ours since conversion, and each reality is actually a vital means to our being able to stand firm, persevere. And I say it like that because it is just possible to spend all of our time on the imagery, which I find is what happens a lot in sermons on, on the armor or books on the armor. We spend all of our time on the imagery and for all intents and purposes miss what the image is actually pointing us to. This would be a lot like what happens on Christmas morning sometimes when you have young, young kids. This, this used to frustrate me. This just talks about my own sin. I would buy what I thought was just the most awesome present for a child, right? It was great. It was going to change their life. And they opened it, 
and they fell in love with the box. Forget the present. The box was like a gem. All, all it was in my mind is a, you know, a content delivery system. But it was the box that they fell in love with. And, well, we don't want to focus here on the box and miss the content. So briefly, let's talk about the box. And then we'll focus on the content. The box, the content delivery system, or the imagery Paul is using, is this armor, right? And it's, he's using it to drive home his point. Now, there's much discussion among Pauline scholars as to whether Paul gets this analogy from a picture of a Roman soldier. That's what a lot of the books go, by the way. Or, or the picture of the messianic warrior that you find in various places in the book of Isaiah. Now, Paul is clearly clearly quoting from Isaiah throughout this text. That is beyond dispute. I mean, Isaiah 59, 17, for example, says, he, the messianic warrior, he put on righteousness like a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. Now, that should sound familiar, right? That's, that's the language Paul's picking up on. All you got to do is just look at your cross-references. He's doing that all the way through. But one of the reasons I do think this is such a useful analogy is because, yes, he's picking up on this Old Testament theme of the Messianic warrior figure, but he's also just picking up on this whole idea of war and a soldier, which was, have been immediately understood by all of his readers living in the Roman world, and quite frankly, on down through the annals of time, right? We understand a wartime picture, and it's useful, isn't it, because it drives home the seriousness of what's at stake. You've probably heard the expression, war means fighting and fighting means killing. I mean, from the earliest days, war has always involved death. Whether it's piercing your opponent's chest cavity with a sword or putting a spear through his neck or perhaps sinking an arrow right between his eyes, or today dropping a laser-guided bomb right in his backyard. Your aim is to kill. It is to cause them to stop breathing. It is for your team, your nation, your country, your people to crush their team, their nation, their people, their country. And if you've got to kill a lot of people in the process, so be it. It's a serious picture, then, that Paul's employing here. And he's not alone in using such a serious picture. John also uses a very serious picture about the spiritual reality going on behind the scenes. In Revelation 12, he, he, he uses this picture of a dragon. And this dragon is fit to be tied. He's furious. He's enraged because of what Jesus has accomplished. And we're told that he sets off to make war on the church. 1 Peter 5, Peter also uses a serious analogy, doesn't he? He uses this picture of Satan prowling around like an apex predator, right? Top of the food chain. And he's prowling around, a roaring lion, seeking to pounce. And what's he want to do? He wants to devour. Think about what's going on. He wants to eat you so that you no longer exist. So these pictures aren't here. So we think, oh, that's sort of cute. No, they certainly shouldn't be boring. No kid who grows up in war-torn streets thinks war is boring. Right? He's dialed in at all times so as to not step on a landmine and blow off a leg or something worse. These pictures shouldn't elicit the idea of fun. They didn't have war video games then. This picture shouldn't elicit a response from someone who likes to play COD on the Xbox as though you might get a do-over when you're dead. Right? The point is this is serious business. What's more, and this is the last thing, 
on the imagery itself before getting into the specifics. But, but, I, but I want to say that you've probably heard something like, the armor is all defensive with the exception of the sword. That's probably the most common thing I had ever heard in sermons with regards to the armor of God. The only offensive weapon is the sword, but I think it totally misses the point. Take the shoes, the combat boots, the, the footwear. Now, those can be used to run toward the enemy or away from the enemy, depending on the situation. But when the shoes are tied to the gospel, like Paul does, spiritually speaking, that's the offensive, right? What about the shield, the breastplate? Are they not just as useful when you're advancing on the enemy than when you're on the defensive? In fact, spiritually speaking, aren't you taking more flaming darts when you're actively engaging in the work of plundering the enemy's camp by rescuing those currently in his bondage. And I say that because we must, we must understand this imagery in light of the battle we're in. Even if you're not currently engaged in it, you know that we're supposed to be in it, right? We need to think about this in light of the mission Jesus has sent us on And again, the imagery is to serve as a reminder of the very serious nature of our mission. So, let's consider the parts. Now, if you're looking at your outline, you might be getting a little nervous. This is going to be a two-hour sermon. The little dotted lines show where we're stopping today. I just put the whole outline together. I'll get rid of the dotted lines next week. But we're going to certainly pick up on this and continue. The first piece of armor is the belt of truth. Of course, the belt is the image, the content, the focal point that the image is pointing us to is truth. What he's trying to drive home is that we need truth if we're going to be able to stand firm in the battle with each of these pieces of armor. We need to remember that they're modifying the command to stand. Y'all stand And then he basically says, and here's how, by means of, the first one is strapping truth around your waist. Now here sometimes the question is posed, is this talking about truth as content or a lifestyle of truth? And I think that's about like asking, is the left wing of an airplane more important than the right wing? I mean, it's, it's a both and. Think about it. What's one of the best ways to take down a church? If you were trying to take down the church what would you do? I think one of the best ways to take down a church is you bring in false teachers. Now, a good false teacher doesn't typically come right in and say, you should deny the divinity of Jesus. We'd be like, get out of here. Come in with something a little subtle, right? Just a shade off or something that might get us distracted. So there's a little by little effect to that. The church building that we worshiped in in the church I pastored in Boston was originally a congregational church. If you know anything about New England Congregational Church, you should interpret that as it was a Puritan church, right? It was a glorious church. They left all of their documents for us, their foundational documents, and it was a, uh, the, the, the theological statement was something that we said yes and amen to every single point, but, but somewhere around late 1800s, early 1900s, and if you know your church history, think theological liberalism, social gospel, somewhere around that time, they 
made a change to their statement of faith. It wasn't overtly liberal, but it freed them up. And, and, and they got focused on social ministries. And by the time they sold us the building for a song, by the time they sold us the building, there were 20 people left in a 35,000 square foot building and no shred of the gospel. See, that's why Paul said back in chapter 4 that the primary role of the pastors and teachers is to teach. We are to equip the saints so that the saints can be at the work of service and that we're all unified in the faith that is the objective faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. We're unified in that so that we will not be children tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, human cunning, or craftiness in deceitful schemes. Do you see? This truth vital to the war. We must be clear on truth. And that being said, it doesn't work if we're doctrinally sound, but deceitful to one another, right? That's why Paul went on in chapter 4 to exhort us at part and parcel of walking in a manner worthy of our calling, living in light of who we are as new creations, is, is, is to put off lying. We, we put off falsehood. And so we speak truth to one another. We don't lead each other astray by conveying half-truths that make people think something different about you or somebody else that you're talking to. Right? Think about it. Just as embracing false teaching destroys the church, so does lying. So does shaving the truth. See, if we want to stand firm in our faith, if we want to persevere, if we want our local church, our band of brothers and sisters, to stay on point, to stay on mission, we must Put on truth every day. Well, how about the breastplate of righteousness? Again, the picture is helpful as it drives home the importance of righteousness in the life of the believer. Think about the breastplate. The breastplate is there to protect you from a sword or a spear piercing your heart or other vital organs, right? And so here, Paul's point is that righteousness, righteousness is vital to the battle as we're advancing the kingdom. Again, the question is sometimes, well, is this embracing our righteousness that we have in Christ or us living righteously? And the answer is yes, it's both. Think about it. One of the greatest strategies of our enemy and his minions is to get us discouraged. It is. How many of you, don't, no show of hands, but how many of you are discouraged today? It's one of his greatest strategies, to get us discouraged. He wants us to go beyond discouragement. He wants us to fall into despair. In fact, the aim is to get us just to quit, to punt the faith, if that were possible for the elect. And thus he whispers, you stink. You stink. You're you're supposed to be a new creation in Christ? Ha! You sin every day. And that particular sin, oh, it's really horrible. And you are a dreadful loser because you have fallen into it multiple times over. See, here the righteousness of Christ, rightly applied, is like a breastplate that keeps those fiery darts from piercing the heart. Like Martin Luther, we need to learn to say, You're right, demon, I am a sinner. But I stand fully clothed in the righteousness of Christ. That's my hope. And on that hope, I will stand by the grace of God. 
See, to wear this piece of armor is to remind ourselves of the gospel. It's to remind ourselves of this truth every day. We stand by preaching the gospel to ourselves every single day. We stand by preaching the gospel to one another every time we're together. Because we need this reminder, church. We are forgetful people. We need this reminder. It's armor for the battle. That being said, the other side of righteousness is also part of the armor. And that is actually growing in righteousness. Remember, we're new creations in Christ, created in Christ Jesus for good works, and we do life together, and to disregard God's call on our life in righteousness makes us vulnerable to successful attacks. Now listen close. Fighting sin is fighting the enemy. Go back to what we were enslaved to, the world, the devil, and the flesh. The world under the influence of the devil, and then our flesh is there, right? So we're following whatever the world says, and, and our flesh is saying, yeah, you got to get more, you got to have that, you need this, and, and, and we're, we're, we're in sin. And we've been freed from that, and yet we still have sin nature, the old man, and, and so there's uh, at times a pull back to that, and so fighting sin is fighting the enemy. Back in chapter 4, we saw that giving in to anger, remember this? Giving in to anger gives a foothold to Satan and his minions. We, we, we translated that a base of operations. If I feel justified in staying angry at somebody, it's as though I'm saying, sure, demons, y'all set up a war fort right in my backyard so you can set up camp right close to me and just, you know, throw grenades. I'm making it easy for you. Now, the question is, do you think that's true only of anger? What about when we give in to say lust? over and over and over again. Or, or greed, right? Think, think, think about that. You know, I, I want more, I want this, I want that, I no longer need to give. I mean, you can, you can see how it's, it's, it's a growing thing. Jealousy. You know, the more we give in to sin, the more it, it, it takes hold. And it's because, it's because there's this base of operations that we're saying, here you go. And by the way, because we're communal, this affects the whole church. And Paul says in Galatians 5, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. And so one of the ways we remain strong in the Lord, one of the ways we stand firm is we fight sin. We embrace the reality that Christ's righteousness covers us And we grow in living out of the overflow of that new reality. And thus we grow in putting on what's already true of us. Putting on righteousness. This then leads to the gospel of peace. And this is the last part of the armor we'll cover today. Here the picture is that of footwear. And he doesn't specify what kind of footwear, which does lead commentators and writers of books, I think it helps sell books, to get into exactly what kind of footwear Paul must have been thinking about. And so we talk about, oh, it's probably like the, the big Roman combat boots with the, with the big studs on the bottom, you know, so they can be engaged and not get pushed back or whatever. But I agree with Clinton Arnold in his commentary that Paul doesn't specify what kind of shoes because it's not the point. Arnold says, quote, Paul's focal point is not the metaphor, but on what it conveys. And here it's the gospel of peace, end quote. 
Remember, the picture, here the footwear, is only there to highlight the importance of what the picture is pointing us to. And here, when we think of spiritual war, the gospel of peace is vital. What's more, notice that he speaks of the preparation or the readiness of the gospel of peace. I mean, church, when you think of getting geared up for battle, I ask about pictures that you had. When you think about getting geared up for battle, spiritual battle, do you think about rehearsing the gospel, memorizing passages, thinking through how you might share the gospel? And do you think about that as part and parcel of standing firm? It's a helpful analogy, isn't it? Any good military prepares themselves for battle. They, they train, they practice, they do the same things over and over again so that when the time comes, they can be good at it. And when we think about our mission, our call to share the gospel of peace, there's a preparation that needs to take place there, isn't there? I mean, I teach a class on this sometimes, and, and, and I'll ask, could you share the gospel, make the gospel clear in three minutes? Think about that. You should try that at home. I encourage you. Could you share the gospel? I'm not talking about watering it down. But could you make the basic tenets of the gospel clear in three minutes? Could you do it in 15 if you had that time? Could you fill that space? Could you do it if it's a four-day conversation with somebody, four-week conversation with somebody where they're asking questions and there's a back and forth? And if not, why not? I trust we could all interact like that on our favorite show, favorite series on Netflix, favorite movie series, favorite book series. Remember in Ephesians 2, we're told that unbelievers are dead in their sin and enslaved to the world, the devil, and the flesh. So when we think about our mission, we are called, think about it, to go behind enemy lines and, and by God's grace, rescue people out of Satan's domain by means of proclaiming the gospel, and we must be prepared to do this. First Peter 3.15, Peter says, always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you about the hope that's in you. We talked earlier about how Paul's consistently picking up on the language of Isaiah, and it's certainly the case here. In Isaiah 52.7, which is a favorite of Paul's, he quotes it in Romans 10, we read, how lovely on the mountains are the feet Listen to the components here. Are the feet of him who brings good news. Here's the, the, the feet, the gospel, right? The feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace. Brings good news of happiness, who announces salvation. And says to Zion, your God reigns. It's ironic, isn't it? That in the context of warfare, peace is a weapon. But when we remember that the actual battle is a spiritual one, against spiritual foes who don't want peace, who want chaos, who want judgment. Oh, it makes sense. Because the gospel is the good news of how sinners in slavery to the world, the devil, and the flesh can be set free from that slavery and find glorious peace with God, and that the devil and his minions do not want. That gets our enemy and his emissaries in full-blown war mode. But that is our call. And we're going to pick back up here next week. But I want to end on this. We often think of spiritual warfare only or at least predominantly on the defensive. But that is just not correct. Think about the mission Jesus has sent us on. Go. Go make disciples. 
Make disciples. Share the gospel. Baptize. Teach. Go. Right? Think about what's involved in that. People are enslaved to the devil. Like I said, we're going behind enemy lines. This this is the mission that we've been sent on. And this is the context of this warfare Paul speaks of. You think I'm making that up? Just for a second, look where Paul will go next week when we see that prayer deploys the armor. Prayer is not a second, uh, last piece of armor. Prayer is over all of it as it deploys the armor, right? And the prayer that he prays, look what it's connected to. Paul says, pray for me. About what? We know Paul's in prison. Pray for me, please, that I'll get out of prison, please. He didn't pray that. Pray for me, please, would you? That, that, that my life experience would be better in the here and now. Would you please pray for me? It's so on the forefront of my mind. Please pray for that. Nope. Pray for the mission, he says. Pray that I might be bold. Pray that I might share the gospel with clarity. I want to make it known. I want to see people come to Jesus. I want to see people rescued out of their slavery and into relationship with God by grace, by faith in Christ. Pray to that end, he says. Church, we want to pray. We want to put on the armor. We want to live the y'all. And we need to engage. Right? We want to be about the mission that we see throughout the scriptures. And the battle is going to be there. I promise you. And we need each other for that. We need each other. We need to put on the armor together. Stand together. That's why small groups are important. It's why getting together with brothers and sisters is important. It's why what we're doing right here is not tangential to the Christian faith. It's vital to the Christian faith. And so let's pray and let's ask the Lord for grace that we would engage in the mission he's called us to and that we would stand strong, standing in the realities that he has given us by virtue of our faith in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you that you have saved sinners like us. Lord, we deserved your wrath. You sent your son to come and pay the price we couldn't pay. And Father, we thank you that you don't leave us on our own. Lord, we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us in your word, that you have called us to gather together in local churches where we could be fed and encouraged and built up and challenged. Father, we pray that you would help us. Lord, we pray that you would help us to be faithful, to live our lives, to glorify you. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you.